Um, I also had a friend uh, this week who was uh, in an emotional place. Um, this month, if you didn't know, it's, it's Pride Month, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons I got a call from my friend the other day. She was struggling uh, a bit. Uh, her, her son is in middle school and is, is transgender in public school, and they are a family that's on fire, like on fire for Jesus. And, and, and right now, n- none of those things is easy. None of those things is easy. And so over the course of days of phone calls, we prayed, um, we laughed, and we, we lingered in the hard silences where nobody knew what to say, but just to know someone on the other end is still breathing um, is enough. And then she reminded me of something that I had said to her when her family started this journey. And I know what you're thinking. Why did you open your mouth? Because usually <laughs> nothing helpful comes out. But she said this, this was helpful for her. Uh, and she reminded me that I said to her that it's okay to be sad. And I said it's, it's okay to be scared. And I said it's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn the loss of the daughter that you thought you'd grow up to see a a beautiful woman. It's okay to be scared of the struggles and the hurdles that your family and and your child are going to face. And I said, it's it's, it's okay to feel your feelings. Like, it's okay. But I said, when you're with your son, you also need to remember to celebrate who he is. To celebrate the beautiful young man he's becoming And because I know him, the confident, funny, compassionate, and in some ways finally mentally healthy young man, he's becoming the child of God that he is. And that got me thinking of my own life because I'm self-centered and everything gets me thinking about myself. No, (laughs) It's, it's because that's what we do as human beings, right? When we have emotional experiences or we experience emotional moments, any moments, right, we we process, we reflect, and we consider our own lives. And I'm not in any way, like my experience is not in the same stratosphere as my friends. I called my brother and we, we talked about my dad because my dad was a lawyer who had, he became a banker um, by the time I was around. And when both my brother and I went off to college, our dad encouraged us to consider studying something practical, something that would get us a good, stable, well-paying job. You know, that was the future he had for us. That's the future he dreamed for us, that he laid out before us. And that's why I took economics in my freshman year. (laughs) And, and, And so I asked my brother, I said, do you think our dad mourned the loss of those, well, tie wearing, clean shaven young accountants and bakers when my brother graduated with a music major and a theater minor, or when I, 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 honesty, like I passed macroeconomics, not by my grades, but by the grace of a professor who never wanted to see my face again. (laughs) I graduated with a theater and English double major, equally useless as far as paying jobs are concerned. And my brother said to me, he said, no, He said, we became exactly the people that our father raised. Because, you see, my dad was a banker, 
but he never talked about banking at home. Look at my checkbook. He never talked about banking at home. At home, he talked about the things that really set his soul on fire. He talked about music. He talked about art, the art he loved, the art he, he made. He, he talked about poetry, and he talked about movies. And our mom, I mean, she just, she just talked about music because she played music all day. She taught music in our house all day. And together they played in the pit orchestra in our local civic theater. My brother and I became exactly the people that my parents raised us to be, even if it wasn't the people that my father saw us becoming in his dreams. How could he then be disappointed? My brother said. Well, today we're looking at the story of a young man who Jesus chose to raise in the faith and who Jesus charged with raising others in the faith. And it all starts with just two words, follow me. Or in German, it's one word, nachfolge, follow me. This is Matthew 9, chapter 9, it's verses 9 through 13. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, what did he say? Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, the words of Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. There's a whole lot of sinners that were called getting ordained today. (laughs) This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the mercy that he brings to each and every one of us. We thank you that he would call even us. We thank you that you speak even unto us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So it's been a minute since we've been here, and by here I mean in Matthew. It's the gospel that we've been following since Advent, except we haven't been for a while. So now we're back in in Matthew. Um, We kind of detoured during Lent. We went into the book of Ruth, and then 1 Peter after Easter, but now the lectionary for, for ordinary time, for the time we're to follow Jesus, the lectionary brings us back to Jesus' ministry and teaching on earth so that we can remember what he taught us to do, who he taught us to be, and what it means to follow Jesus. Again, that's why those feet are on the banners. They're his feet, they're our feet. So it's fitting that we begin this season, this part of the liturgical year, this church year with Matthew's call story. Matthew, he's an, he's an OG. Y'all know what that means? Original gospel sharer. That's Matthew. He's one of the 12 disciples. He's the author of this 
gospel. And here's what we know about Matthew. He was young, probably in his early 20s. He had a government job. He was a tax collector, sitting in his tax booth, collecting tolls from people, transporting goods, which means he may very well have been collecting tolls from some of the fishermen in town as they brought in their daily catch. Fishermen like Peter and Andrew. That had to be a little bit awkward later on. Which means he was not a very popular guy among the locals. And speaking of locals, he was living in Capernaum. That's where Peter's mother-in-law lived on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. That means, though, that he surely would have heard about this guy, Jesus, performing miracles in his town, like the centurion's paralyzed servant being able to walk again, or Peter's mother-in-law, who herself was gravely ill and was healed, or the crowds of people just before Matthew sees Jesus, the crowds of people that Jesus had freed from the demons terrorizing their lives. So when the same Jesus comes up to him and says these two words, which are, follow me, Matthew doesn't miss a beat. He says, no, thank you. He says, I've got a nice job. I'm pretty comfortable. My wife and I, we've been able to settle down, send our kids to college. They're going to study economics, and one day they're going to sit behind a booth just like this and make a decent living. They'll be comfortable too, and if I can just manage to hold on to this job for a few years, I'll get a nice pension, some good health care, and things will be great. So thank you, Jesus, for the offer, but it sounds a little too risky. I'm cool, Jesus. That's what he said, right? He was sensible. He was practical that way. I mean, that's how he landed the job in the first place, right? So that's what Matthew did, right? Right? No, that's not what he did. No, when Jesus said those words, follow me, akolathemoi in Greek, nachfolge in German, Follow along. Succeed me in my work. Matthew got up and followed. And I always wonder, like, what Matthew's parents thought about that moment. You know, when word got back to them that he just up and walked off the job. A good, sensible, stable job. Maybe a job Matthew's dad had pulled a few strings to get him. Like, what did his friends think? or his tax-collecting co-workers. Matthew did what? Is that guy an idiot? Is he drunk? Surely he's not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. What would possess someone to just walk away from something they'd worked so hard for? Something I'd worked so hard for him to be able to do with his life. Any parents, when you pay in the college tuition, you're like, whoa, that's not what I paid for. (laughs) I wonder if his parents mourned the loss of the son they'd always dreamed they'd have. I wonder if they were scared for what might happen to him. If I wonder if they were feeling all the, the feels, you know. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's parents were, I know that's a hard turn. You're like, what, who, right? But bear with me. This summer, we're, we're not following Jesus by ourselves. We're following Jesus alongside some of the saints of the Christian church, women and men throughout history who, like Matthew and like Jesus, and maybe like us, they've, they've had this encounter with God. They've dropped everything. They've devoted their lives 
to doing the thing that God has called them to do. This is our summer of saints and sinners because usually they're the same person. (laughs) Because we are. It's a title that reminds us that nobody is perfect, nobody except Jesus. The saints of our church are certainly not perfect. They sinned just like us. That's why Jesus called them, because Jesus calls who? Sinners. They got it wrong sometimes. They missed the mark. But each of them in their own way shows us a way in which we too might learn to follow Jesus. They inspire us. They're examples of what it means to truly give your all to follow Jesus. Now, some of you, when you think, especially depending on your upbringing, when you think of saints, you might think of the Catholic Church and how Catholics venerate saints or our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters um, pray to icons of the saints. You might view, view them as intercessors in our um, life with God, that they pray on our behalf when we pray to them. That's the Catholic vision of saints. But in the Methodist denomination, we still have saints. We don't quite view them the same way. We view saints as people, just like you and me. There's no system to becoming a saint. In fact, we talk about the communion of saints, right? All those who've gone before us in the faith. And so when we talk about saints, even Catholic or Anglican saints, we simply mean those Christians who've gone before us that can serve as exemplars of the faith. People we can look to to help us understand our own walk and to inspire us in our own walk, to remind us of what God has empowered us to be able to do on days when sometimes getting, we don't feel empowered to get out of our bed, much less do amazing things. They've walked this path before us, so you can think of the feet on the banners as representing the feet of the saints as well showing us a way. Bonhoeffer certainly fits this definition. He was born in Breslau, Germany, into a family of eight brothers and sisters in the early 20th century. His father, Karl, was a respectable man. He was a psychiatrist and a neurologist. His mother, Paula, was a teacher. His family prized education and the arts. Dietrich was even performing with the symphony orchestra on piano by the time he was 11. They were respectable. They were upper-class elites. Their families socialized with similar families. They had cars, but not just cars. They had drivers to drive their cars for them. And, when, and they were intellectuals, which means at that time that even though they considered themselves Protestant Christians, German Lutherans, they didn't actually go to church. They just thought about church and talked about church. They intellectualized church. It wasn't their style to actually be in a church. But Paula, Dietrich's mom, she she taught them the faith. Her grandfather had been a rather famous German theologian, a religious thinker of of note. And so when Dietrich was 14, he declared, I'm going to study theology. His family was less than receptive. His father was a scientist. He dealt with facts and truth and intangible realities. And his older brother was a lawyer, a stable, respectable profession. This was not the life they envisioned for Dietrich. This was not the life they preferred for Dietrich. 
And nevertheless, he went to university, and, and true to the life, the upbringing he had, the family he lived in, he excelled. The same intellectual climate that his parents has cultivated at home did him well in his studies. That same curiosity they instilled in all the Bonhoeffer children led to him finishing his doctorate at 21, left him to writing some still classic works on the Christian life at an early age, led him to traveling to America to study in New York City where his life was changed and his soul was set on fire at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem where he taught Sunday school and was so moved by the black Christian experience and especially the music that before this, he still didn't really go to church, right? It was like, no, faith is all up here. But that music moved him, and his faith caught his soul on fire. His intellectual experience of Jesus became a soul experience of Jesus. And so when he returned to Germany during the rise of Hitler's power, he could no longer be respectable. Everything his parents had taught him, everything he'd studied about Jesus, everything his soul cried out to him, told him he could not be of a part of a church that had just become a state-run church by the Nazi regime that now worshipped Jesus and Hitler in the same breath. So he helped form an underground church. They called it the Confessing Church because they confessed Christ as their Savior and not Hitler as their ruler. And he formed a secret underground seminary to train others in the proper faith, even though it could cost everyone their lives. And when times got hard, his friends worked to get him on a boat back to America because they were worried for his life. And he says he took one step on the ground in America and realized he was not supposed to be there. And he got back on literally the last boat that left from America to Germany before the war kicked in for us. And he went back to Germany and he wrote a book that still influences Christian today called, in English, The Cost of Discipleship. And he said, when we think about grace and forgiveness, that grace and forgiveness that God has been given to everyone, when we think about that, when we celebrate that, when we lean into that, when we go to freedom in America to escape possible danger in our homeland, don't forget what that grace and that forgiveness cost Jesus through his suffering death, and resurrection. That grace wasn't free. It may be free to all of us, but it did cost someone a price. And he said when we forget the price that Christ paid, we cheapen God's grace. Cheap grace. When we don't think about what it costs us to follow Christ, we cheapen the grace that allowed us, strengthened us to follow him in the first place. Cheap grace. He said, no, following Jesus, Nachfolge, which was the original title of Bonhoeffer's book. I mean, it still is in Germany, the title of his book. Following, follow, to succeed Jesus in this role. It should cost us something. He said, we gain everything when we decide to follow Jesus, but we do have to give up some things. That's the hard part, right? We do have to give up some things. And that can be painful because it's not always cheap. It's not as cheap as we make it out to be. You know, when Matthew walked away from that tax collecting booth, he gave up a lot. 
He gave up stability, comfort, friends, maybe even his family. He gave up the life he dreamed for himself, the life his parents had dreamed for him, had worked hard for him to have. He probably disappointed a lot of people. But look what he gained. He gained a life with Jesus. He witnessed miracles. He heard Jesus teach. He hung out with the Son of God, and he walked alongside the Messiah, our Savior, and he watched that same Savior die. Yes, pay the cost for the brokenness of all humanity, but he also saw him rise again, and he saw the promise of his own resurrection firsthand. And I'm sure that gave him some assurance when Matthew faced his own death for faith in Jesus Christ, when he too paid the ultimate cost of discipleship. I pray that it gave his family and friends hope as they watched Matthew's suffering and death as he became a martyr for the faith. I hope that when they saw the death of the young man they hoped their child, their brother, their friend would become, they also saw him become the child of God that the Father Almighty had created him to be. Bonhoeffer's decision to no longer be a part of the Nazi German church sent him into a world of resistance. And as he and his fellow confessing church members and leaders watched the oppression and the murder of their Jewish brothers and sisters, their renewed faith in Jesus Christ, not just an intellectual faith, but a soul-on-fire faith, compelled them to pay the ultimate price as well. First, Bonhoeffer became a spy. He wrote a book called Ethics that's still very influential, and he became a spy, a liar. He became a spy in the Nazi establishment so that it enabled him to go to churches outside of Germany and help smuggle Jewish families to safety there. And as thing got wor- things got worse, he and his fellow Christians, they laid their lives and their faith on the line as they engineered three different failed attempts to assassinate Hitler. Bonhoeffer was a famous pacifist, (laughs) except his feet led him to a place he couldn't have conceived of intellectually, but that his soul cried out to do, to save lives. And the really interesting thing about that is he said, it's still a sin, but I'm willing to enter into this sin to save lives and throw myself on the mercy of Jesus Christ and do everything I can to stop the slaughter happening in concentration camps, which led to Bonhoeffer's capture and his own imprisonment in a concentration camp and eventually his execution on April 8, 1945, at the age of 38 at the Flossburg concentration camp, a martyr's death mere weeks before the... United States Army marched into that same camp and saved all those in prison. He died a martyr's death like Jesus, like Matthew. Surely this wasn't the life that Bonhoeffer's parents had envisioned for him. It wasn't the life that Matthew's family had envisioned for him either. These weren't the men their children, they dreamed their children would grow up to be. And I'm sure there was a great deal of sadness and mourning in that, to be sure. But even today, we still celebrate the children of God that people like Matthew and Dietrich Bonhoeffer became. 
the ways that they lived into the human beings that God created them to be. Sure, it came at a cost, but it was so worth the price. An opportunity to participate in God's kingdom work here on earth, the opportunity to worship him eternally in heaven. Like Bonhoeffer, his friend said, man, he was a horrible assassin. (laughs) But he was a beautiful follower of Jesus. I can only hope that as I look back, my parents can say the same about me. That they can celebrate the child of God that I've become despite the disappointments (laughs) along the way. Despite macroeconomics, don't do it. (laughs) I can hear in my friend's voice that she celebrates the child of God that her son has become. And knowing her and her heart and her faith and her strength, she is exactly the young man (laughs) she raised him to be even if he doesn't look like the person she thought he would be. So what did Jesus do? He laid down his life because of who he was. He was a child of God. He paid the cost of discipleship, and in return he received the glory of heaven. It's it's what Bonhoeffer did. It's what Matthew did. It's what I see my friend's son doing. It's what I hope people say one day that I have done in my walk with Jesus. Which leaves just one question. Is this going to be a surprise to anybody at all in the room? (laughs) What will you do? Where do you need to let go of the comfort, the ease, and the stability of your life to truly become the child of God that you were created to be. Amen? Amen.